it's like, oh, but there's this ontological foundation I can now build where I have this ability to deal with like the startup world, which is probably one of the most difficult things in the world. It's like you're simultaneously dying and living your best life at the same time. Yeah. You, all on the same day. All on the same day, yeah. all on the same time. You're like, what is going on? It's like yeah. one day this is going well, the next day you have to fire your employees and it's terrible and no one wants to do that. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with that life as a startup founder? Even you going through tough stuff in your family life, it's like, it's very hard to deal with that. Mm -hmm. But there are tools out there that are holes, not the pieces. Like meditation is a piece. Like look at the whole tool. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest today was Charlie Pinto. He is formerly a Google, an angel investor, and was introduced to one of my previous by one of my previous guests, Jude Gomilla, the founder of Golden, uh, which I highly recommend you guys check out. Um, and he was introduced to me by. Sumon uh, Sadu in New York uh, from Plato Designs and all three of them were incredibly interesting interviews and this is like the crescendo right now uh, with this interview. Um, Charlie has a lot of very keen insight into the whole practice of spirituality which is essentially the whole practice of life. You can't split it up into separate things and Meditation is becoming really popular right now because uh, because people are saying because high status people are saying oh you got to do this in order to to live your life. Meditation is just one piece of the puzzle as Charlie talks about. Uh, it, can't, it can't be the whole thing. So you got to figure out how to live life as a whole, not as something separate, but as a whole. And this gets to the point of yoga, which means union, which is to well, it's a, a big big question to actually say what yoga is because it's pointing to something that is the backdrop to the language that i'm speaking right now so hope you guys enjoy this if you do please find us on itunes and by searching for crazy wisdom if you like it give us a review uh, also find me on twitter and tell me what you think of this episode i'm at Stuart Alsop iii uh, i'd love for you to share your thoughts on what you think um, Thanks. Have a great day. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Charlie Pinto. He works at Google. He's an angel investor at Fundamental Ventures and a Y Combinator alumnus. Uh, really great to have you on the show. Really excited to get into your worldview. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so I, something about our conversations and emails made me think that you'd be a really good person to ask this question to. How, what is the spiritual equivalent of anti-fragility or how do you become anti-fragile in the spiritual sense so i'm thinking so that's a very good question and so you know anti-fragility uh, a term that was coined by nasim taleb is uh, to kind of define it it's something that gains from disorder so something that you know if you say you have a coffee mug on a table and you push it off the table and it breaks, that thing's fragile. If you have a rock on a table, you push it over and it falls, that's robust. If you have something on the table, you push it over and it turns into like the Incredible Hulk, that's like an <laughs> anti-fragile, like a, a stressor makes it stronger. Uh, so that it gains from disorder. And when I'm thinking about the spiritual equivalent of maybe like FU money or like the spiritual equivalent of that, there's this idea that I recently came across, and it wasn't until I took a lot of time off of wrestling. I was a NCAA Division I wrestler at University of Maryland, go Terps. 
Um, and then 10 years later, a decade later, after going through a whole bunch of stuff where I didn't want to step on the wrestling mat, and uh, I realized that if I look backwards in time and analyze myself back then with some of the tools I have now, uh, though I wouldn't change anything, I have no regrets, I do see things differently today and how I will react, uh, will act in the world today. So one of the, the so kind of like that preface, the spiritual equivalent to FU money is this idea of non-grasping, non-attachments. And so to give you an example, uh, in wrestling, my attachment was NCAA Division I All-American. So every single day it was like, I am grasping towards that. I am attaching myself to that. And when you don't achieve that thing, you then are, you, you have become that thing and you are now not that thing. So where do you go to? So this idea of non-attachment is, uh, it's kind of uh, birthed out of uh, the Taoist and Zen philosophy where uh, you have this concept of no mind. And to kind of give you what this means by no grasping, it's like, so if you are in a competitive engagement with somebody one-on-one, -on -one, say we are doing jujitsu, which is what I do now, and I am fixating on your leg because I want to attack your leg, you are going to do something else because I'm not thinking about all the other things that are happening. So what you're doing is you're actually you're fixating on one thing. You are not seeing the whole thing in a peripheral sense of view so that when something happens, you can act. Mm -hmm. And this is what a lot of like Zen, like the art of X, the art of, the art of uh, uh, archery, the mm -hmm. art of everything in like this Zen culture is like non-fixating on things. And so the spiritual equivalent of FU money is basically non-attachments, non-fixating, walking around with no mind. That doesn't mean you're mindless, mm -hmm. it just means that you're not attaching yourself. So mm -hmm. you want a job at a venture capital firm, like that's fixating and attaching yourself to it. You wanna become a successful founder of a company, you're fixating and attaching to it. It doesn't mean you can't have an aim mm -hmm. per se, but you're attaching yourself to it and that becomes very problematic in, in a variety of ways that manifests itself in uh, from having those fixations and attachments. And a lot of people hear that, and a lot of people hear the word attachment, and they're like, okay, I'm going to not be attached to anything, but that just ends up creating a loop because then it's just an attachment to the negative form of that attachment. So you're, you're, you're flipping it around, and like that's the subtlety that most people, I think, don't really understand about this practice is that it's like essentially it's, it's how can I be present every single moment as it's continuously changing because life is continuously changing. And just like you said, you were a NCAA champion and then that, that no longer was the case. And then all of a sudden your identity had to then, then like there was a dissonance, there was disconnect between those two things. And like, so how, how can we live in this world, which tells us all the time that we have to attach to something, we have to aim, we have to strive, we have to always be stuck on something. How can we live in this world with that, with that? Exactly. And it's like, find your purpose, find your passion. Those are all attachments. Oh, interesting. And so what people will say is like, you'll get these commencement speech where it's like, go out in the world and change the world. Well, that's an attachment towards changing the world. You got to first like master yourself. And so now this is a precondition towards having this, uh, mm. uh, this, you know, no mind, quote unquote, no mind is you first have to get to a point where you have some level of mastery of something. So I tell a lot of people that come to me when they're younger, it's like, give me advice. Like you were a wrestler and now you're in the Silicon Valley and you, you know, work at all these cool companies and you do all these neat things. Like, well, tell me how to do it. It's like, well, I'm not gonna tell you how to do it. What you should do is you should go and find one thing and master it, mm -hmm. whether that's a sport or whether that's an art, what like music or painting, master something because it's almost like the, uh, 
once you, it's like this idea of the way, it's like this Japanese, the way, it's like once you find the way, you see the way in all things. Mm -hmm. So once you master a Tao, you see the Tao in all, or mm -hmm. yeah, so like that's whole, that's the, you're able to see those things. And so you get like goosebumps when you see, mm -hmm. um, say a sushi chef in front of you and you know what mastery looks like, you know what mastery feels like. You see a sushi chef preparing food in front of you, you're watching their hands, you're watching the presentation, but you also know the level of preparation that went into organizing the way that they're bringing the fish out, the way that they're bringing things out, how much time they spent on the rice. Mm -hmm. So you have to have an understanding first before you can operate in the realm of no mind. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like uh, this yin and yang. At first you have to be overly structured. You have to have a, not a purpose, but you are actively on a path. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the point where you sort of understand what it means to master a path though you can't articulate it. And then that's when you can operate in a sense of no mind. Like in jujitsu, I can shut my mind off and just react or let the other person or feign movements to make the other person react mm. in order to do something I want them to do. I don't know what it is that I want them to do, but I'm making the action happen. And this gets into kind of the science behind what's going on in the brain, which is that essentially um, uh, we most of our thoughts are unconscious. So, and I don't mean that in the sense of a Freudian unconscious mind that we have repressed. I mean that in the sense that like, I'm looking at things, what I'm actually looking at is not the thing itself because my eyes, eyes are dumbing that down to a ratio of, of by 10 and then going through neurons that go into my brain, which then create a map that's been influenced by all my conditioning as well. So it's like, we're not actually seeing reality. We're seeing a picture of reality and I, I forgot where where I was going with that, but... <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I, I think one of the ailments of Western society today is over-rationalization. Mm. We need to, and this is the one thing that I, I posted about, I think that you commented on Twitter, it's uh, I think that uh, we look at parts and then we assert that the whole is made, is oh, that the whole is made of those mm -hmm. parts, but that's not true in a complex system. In a complex system, the parts... Uh, the parts are made of the whole. The whole is the thing that happens because if you put those parts together in a complex system, you're going to get a completely different whole the next time. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And emergent, this is what I was talking about with Safi Bacall and emergent systems and how um, emergent systems uh, basically uh, are larger than the sum of its parts. So you can't just, and this is kind of a sidetrack, but get into things like THC and uh, cannabis. It's like the whole plant and then they take one part of the plant like CBD and then they say that that's, that that'll cure your thing, but it's actually the interaction of the entire plant together that derives the medicinal value. Absolutely, 100%. And this is, these types of issues are all over, uh, you know, I think Western society has brought a lot of, and like you have these ancient Greek uh, uh, philosophers who are phenomenal. But when you get things like Plato, they're overly, mm -hmm. they're, they're forms. Mm -hmm. Like this is the way that the world exists. And this is, actually it's not. The world is sloppy, human language is sloppy, interactions with the world is sloppy. So when we get back to this idea of non-attachment, it's you are interacting with the world around you because you can't will the world around you. You have to let the world come to you. You interact with the world around you and you're able to realize what it is that you want to realize in that moment. So for me, it's like I want, I know that I like building things, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to attach myself to a thing I want to build because I'm going to let the world come to me and let you know, the world, cons they call it conspiring for you. Huh. And when you have that level of just um, surrendering, it's so peaceful because you don't have to attach yourself to material things. You don't have to attach yourself to conferences where you have to be guest speakers. Mm -hmm. You don't have to attach yourself to the goal of being at the TED conference 
or being the best venture capitalist or the best founder. You want to achieve those things, but you're not grasping for them. Mm-hmm. You are interacting with the world around you. You are listening to customers to build things they want, mm-hmm. as opposed to enforcing what it is that customers want. And we do this time and time again. We enforce what people should be doing. And what we end up with is regime changes in foreign countries, mm-hmm. which add a whole bunch of tremendous pressure on the whole global ecosystem because mm-hmm. they built up from the bottom up. We didn't like the way that they are operating, but you can't just go wipe them out and then think that if you build it up your way, top down, or you build it down, top down your way, it's going to end up in something ideal. Mm. That's a very platonic way of thinking. I think that's even when you go to the idea of like the mindfulness is kind of a misnomer because you're fixating on the mindfulness. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and meditation practice, and this is the whole thing, is that like meditation do, is helpful for some people. That, and, and defining practice of meditation here is like sitting down for 10 to 15 minutes and, and focusing on your breath. And when you lose attention on the breath, you come back to the breath and you pre- repeat that over and over again. That's like a helpful technique for somebody. Exactly. But it's like so many people get wrapped up in that and then create whole religions around it and whole kind of practices around this this one thing which is just a tiny piece of what 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 is necessary to talk about what you're talking about yeah it ends up becoming cherry picking where mm. you're cherry picking something that fits for you mm. without the context of the whole mm. uh, or you're just not doing the other things like i practice uh, meditation every day when i do jujitsu or when i work out it's like right in meditative states i'll do breathing exercises in meditative state the mm. meditation is not the goal mm. Yeah. The meditation is a thing that you do as part of this whole. Yeah. And, and this is why uh, they give systems like the art of living system. I've always thought about that. Like art of living is a meditation um, kind of program. I forget by the, one of the Indian uh, swamis or whatever. And, uh, and I always thought about that name, like the art of living. Uh, like this is a whole like life practice and, and Meditation, you can start to think like, oh, I'm just going to do this 15 minutes a day and then the rest of my day I'm going to have this other whole, whole life that kind of didn't really change that much. It's like, no, but then you can start bringing that into your whole other life as well. And like and like each conference, that's the most difficult thing for me recently is having to really, you know, like the kind of the, the family aspect of it as well because like family is so triggering and, mm-hmm. and bringing, uh, bringing that practice into my family <laughs> dynamics because, the you know, those yeah. were like, uh, like, you know, young age things that happen when we're very young are like so. It's just, there's no quick fix for it. You know, mindfulness isn't going to do anything about Absolutely. about these the kind of things. You know, I was I was recently in Japan and uh, was getting a tour of a mausoleum by a Shingon monk. Shingon is a it's a it's esoteric Buddhism in Japan. It's a combination of both uh, Buddhism and uh, Shinto religions. And so this is a really interesting discussion. And uh, he was telling me about how uh, when I get angry, I get angry, I have to detach my emotion from the object. And I was like, oh yeah, duh, that makes a ton of sense. Mm. <laughs> because you're like, I am mad at my, my family member or I'm mad at my significant other for X. Well, that person doesn't know why I'm mad. I'm attaching an emotion to that object. I should remove the emotion from the object and just realize what that emotion is mm. and then just now address whatever it is that needs to be addressed. So mm. I think like that disconnection, mm. it's almost like that detachment mm-hmm. and then sitting back and looking from a different lens is something that tends to not exist in today's trigger culture. Well, and that, that brings up in mind a question: Can you be detached yet still passionate about something, or are passion and detachment 
I opposites. I still mm-hmm. think that passion is an attachment to something. Oh, interesting. Because passion's great when it's used in the context that it needs to be. It's like if you're telling, you know, I, if I am in, uh, I mean, it's, it's so hard to figure out one. There's like so many things where like we have these movies and, and these books that talk about passion and passion rarely ends up in something good. Mm. Uh, passion gets wrapped up because passion is not moderated. Passion is to the extreme. Mm. So passion can be used as a tool, but passion should also be, you should have the ability to like, so like passion is attachment. Do I want to use passion as a tool in order to reach this goal? Cool. Yeah. Ah, interesting. And so that makes me think about like skillful means and uh, uh, um, discernment because in the same way that anger is like a natural human reaction that you can feel. Uh, and I guess this is, what, this is what I've been working with recently, which is that instead of uh, detaching it totally, I experience the emotion and I almost digest it so that there is no story left over after the emotion and so that I can actually fully experience whatever it was and then let go of it and let it pass through my being. What do you think about that? Have you tried that? Uh, yeah, for like a, <laughs> a very long time. Um, they still, for for me, and I know that everyone has an opinion on this, I still feel like if you feel the emotion, you are still attaching the emotion. Because the emotion, mm. you can feel the emotion, but you have to really look at yourself. You're detaching that emotion from the object. Mm. Um, I'm trying to get better at this. I know that I do it still. It's not like I'm sitting here on this you know, on this soapbox preaching and, you know, we're all valuable. And I think that's this thing that I've been playing around with lately around uh, this concept of the Apollonian and Dionysian. Mm. And it's going to make sense in a second, but like we have Dionysus and then we have Apollo. Apollo is like bringing order out of chaos and it is that world. Uh, if you're, I think the world is overly Apollonian, and this is not a new thing. Nietzsche said the same thing. Like the world is overly Apollonian. We lost sense of what it means to, and who his teacher was was Dionysus, which is we look at like the god of revelry and the wine mm-hmm. goddess, like an ancient uh, Greek god. You're saying Nietzsche's god was Dionysus. Nietzsche's mentor <laughs> was Dionysus, uh-huh. like his teacher. Yeah, uh, that's the way that he looked at that god as being his that archetype that god being his teacher and the reason why and it didn't really click until a few months ago and i was having this like really deep discussion with a friend and uh he he said well because when you go down that path you realize how bad you can be Mm -hmm. and you realize you may not physically harm somebody you can emotionally harm people Mm -hmm. and so realizing that you're capable of doing that dionysus would come whenever he would damn well please to come and he would make it known that you are not as good as you think you are. Yeah. Which is why Nietzsche had these books like Beyond Good and Evil. It's like you are not as good as you think you are. You have to realize what the world is. Mm-hmm. And it's not a pretty place. Mm-hmm. People are uh, capable of pretty terrible things. Mm-hmm. And you are capable of pretty terrible things. And your family members are capable of pretty terrible things. And your co-founders are mm-hmm. and your investors are. Mm-hmm. And when you realize that you have this, that people are capable of this and you are capable of this, and you integrate that with yourself, mm-hmm. You can open your heart to people and be like, I know that this person, maybe they're not meaning it to me. Maybe they're having a bad day. Mm. And But it seems like there's a key step there that you need to take, which is essentially to recognize that there is this part of you that is uh, will do horrible shit if, there's, if it's under the right circumstances, basically. And mm-hmm. to how do you integrate that? You integrate that by... Staring into the abyss, yeah. you have to. You have to realize, and like I've been there multiple times. Like, 
a startup that was on the brink of failure and didn't end up exiting perfectly um, and having investors breathing down your neck. And, you know, at that point, I'm just like, I'm fixating on the investors that are sending terrible emails to me about how much of an idiot I am. And I'm fixating on people doing terrible things to me in order to block the deal. I'm fixating on the fact that my employees are potentially going to have to go find a job and they only have a certain amount of time. I can't give them severance because I don't have enough money to pay for payroll. And it's like, oh my goodness. And like that, like lost my hearing in my ear. So it's like, you have to like, you have to experience it first. Mm. And I think that this is a, I think like this idea of elders to guide you through that process doesn't exist today. It's like, Mm. who guides you through it? It's like, you used to be like religion guides you through it. It used to be elders of a village. And now you have to figure it out on your own. Yeah. And and a particular aspect of that, which is really important, which most people don't get, and which is going to be a huge problem in in a few years when people start going down this meditation path with things like Headspace, which are which are one to many non non relate not personalized relationship because it's that one on one mentorship that mm-hmm. that many people in the society don't have that are they are now replacing with uh, with non customized audio or video kind of like, oh, I'm going to look at the documentary and then try to apply it to my life. But whatever they're applying to the life is just like representative of the same level of mindset that they, that they started with. So it's not going to get them anywhere. There is a really interesting, so uh, Memories, Dreams, Reflections by Carl Jung, he talks about how he would go into these deep, dark places. Uh. And he says, you shouldn't go in there because you need people to guide you through uh. them. Because if you go in there without being guided in and out, bad things are going to happen to you. You're not going to integrate that Dionysian aspect interesting into your psyche and I thought that's like you know we're talking like spiritual meta like we're like metaphysics <laughs> at like a high level like this yeah. stuff you know like you can't articulate it that well it's like it's like the Tao the Tao that can be articulated is not it's really the Tao, Tao. it's yeah. like it's hard to articulate these things we intuitively know but language is sloppy I think objects are better mm. ways to represent this and what do you mean archetypes like oh, uh, yeah. oh, like mandalas as an example or um you know paintings or the archetype of dionysus as opposed to all the different like what we would do in this overly rational way is like we will bullet out (laughs) all the things that dionysus is and we would like reduction it down Uh, like uh you know not understanding that it's the whole that's made up of the parts not the parts that make the whole Mm. Um, so that's why it's important to it's good to talk through these things, but it's also important to realize that like you can't be reductionist uh, in these ways. And can you avoid it either? Like me hearing, I mean, I've already gone through a lot of it, but 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 you know, say you're an audience member who's hearing this, who's like 19, 20 years old, who's saying that hearing you say like you kind of really kind of have to experience uh, the shitty things in order to understand how shitty life can get. Can you ever learn that lesson without going through it? No, this is something that a lot of <laughs> Uh, so this was what ruined a lot of the Buddhist schools and the Zen schools is like everyone that was, uh, you know, these wealthy families wanted to send their children to go get, you know, their, their certificates of enlightenment. And then uh, these Buddhist monks were like, we can't handle this many people, so we have to create structure. Uh, and so now you're there to get that certificate. But there's this one uh, uh, Zen monk called Ikkyu, uh, who's just like, I don't want any certificate. I'm just like on my path. And he was like drinking all the time. And it's just, he was, he totally integrated that part. And was like, I'm still, I'm, I'm whatever it is that I am. I'm like on my path and I'm, a, I'm this Zen like monk, but I don't need to go to, you know, do all these things you're doing. That's just like. Why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. You, you, you can't, you can't, 
in this day and age where you're looking for the next hack, mm-hmm. you know, I think like, you know, I love Tim Ferriss, but he's like, you know, the tips and tricks and all that. It's like, you know, there's like life is not about like you can't hack life. You need to like experience it in its mm-hmm. fullness. Mm-hmm. You need to like affirm it <laughs> because if you don't affirm it, the only other way down is just like you are just totally nihilistic about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like life is terrible and, you know, it's all because you're just grasping for things. And mm-hmm. of course, life is going to be terrible if you're grasping. I mean, mm-hmm. Life is hard and terrible and, <laughs> at times. and that, But life is also, as you're saying, life is also affirming and fulfilling as well. But you can't be fulfilling if you have this positive mentality or uh, a positive thinking mentality where it's just like, oh, life's great all the time, you know. And, but like, there's, there needs to be this, this, this almost suffering or, or, or pain that it needs to experience in order to have the beauty of life become apparent. Yeah, and this is something that Nietzsche says too. He's like, you know, if it wasn't for my suffering, he suffered from what seems today to be like a terrible autoimmune flare-ups mm. or irritable bowel syndrome. And he's like, if it wasn't for this suffering, I wouldn't understand how great life is. Mm. So you need to look into the abyss. You need to like climb the mountain, which is hard. You like conquer the mountain. And then like at the top of the mountain, you're like, now I got to repel down this mountain. And like, there's a hole there. So I'm like literally staring, like I have to go back down. And it's a repetitive cycle of that over and over. It's like, you'll never reach the top. Mm. It's just uh, gradients of learning and Mm -hmm. gradients of experiences. And it's uh, this is why there's so much like Buddhist scripture that start, talks about like the incomparable state and the non the non relative state because at when we continuously come back to what is currently happening it is always infinite in its presence and that but then ego and mind come come in and kind of formulate a linearity that we then are now in this okay it's it's you know it's like you know, you came over and now we're talking and then there's this line, a story. But then if we come back to like what's going on right now, it becomes incomparable. It comes like this kind of uh, limitless present almost. Um, it's really hard to get that into. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's it's very organic. Like our process of coming here today was very organic. Mm-hmm. I didn't reach out to you. You were talking to one of my really good friends and... Just we happened. just we I just sent some emails. It wasn't premeditated. Uh-huh. It was, it was organic. And here we are having a good discussion and drinking some drinking some tea and drinking some water. And it's like this is like good. Like yeah. I'm gonna go home tonight. I'm gonna do whatever I do. And like there is nothing that's going to influence that from mm. a top down level. It's mm. all it's this is organic component to life. And we tend to want to control it because we have these attachments. And when you overly centralize top down, think. Mm-hmm. pop over it may feel stable because your life is on novocaine for a while but then when it tips it like it literally tips yeah. it's like J- jenga blocks yeah. like just falls yeah. over yeah. because you haven't built the ontological foundation that you needed growing up or after growing up or after growing up <laughs> like you're still building this ontological and like i was like i didn't have i didn't have an ontological foundation until i started reading the seem Taleb's books and i'm like oh yeah this makes sense like duh uh. and then ontological foundation and spiritual, a spiritual sense until I started reading books on like Japanese, you know, Zen and like the art and then like Chinese, uh, you know, Buddhism. And, you know, it's like, oh, there's this ontological foundation I can now build where I have this ability to deal with like the startup world, which is probably one of the most difficult things in the world. It's like you're simultaneously dying and living your best life at the same time. Yeah. You, all on the same day. All on the same day, all on the same time. You're like, what is going on? It's like yeah. one day this is going well, the next day you have to fire your employees and it's terrible and no one wants to do with that. Mm-hmm. So how do you deal with that life as mm-hmm. a startup founder? Even you going through tough stuff in your family life, it's like it's very hard to deal with that. Mm-hmm. 
but there are tools out there that are holes, not the pieces. Like meditation is a piece. Like mm-hmm. look at the whole tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for mm-hmm. go ahead. Yeah, there's no prescription for that too. Like like you know a lot of a lot of, and this is one of the questions I had earlier, which is like Tim Ferriss has his podcast, and like I'm creating this podcast so that I can attempt to get a little bit of what we're pointing at into a a form that that can can spread. But I wonder. Is it something that can actually spread? Because basically, the, the, what you just said is that there is no prescription for this. There, you have to find it on your own. Uh, is it possible to do what I'm thinking of doing? And and is the truth popular, or is it is it does it have? Well, you can be anti fragile, huh. and like uh, the more people try, like the more the more your idea resonates, the more it spreads because it's resonating with people. To do that, you need to figure out like how can it like they. They can't take you down, basically, because yeah. you're the single point of failure. So mm-hmm. you have to be the vector where the like you say something challenging the status quo. And yeah, you can take me down. That's fine. I'm gonna keep on going. I'm gonna mm-hmm. keep on spreading my message. And like an example, of this is like everyone wanting to take down like he's polarizing, but like Jordan Peterson is like uh-huh. take him down. The stronger he gets, you want to take down uh, Trump. Like the stronger he gets, you want to yeah. take down Nassim Taleb. The stronger he gets. It's like because these people are anti fragile. Mm. And so, like, the more you talk about them, the more people learn about them. <laughs> Interesting. This is, uh, I'm going to bring in a little kind of, like, I'm going to be honest, I've been, the main thing I've been doing the last couple of days is, like, I've, I've been producing all this content, and I've been doing it now for about a year and a half, and the biggest thing, the most difficult thing for me to deal with is uh, just the silence that happens when I, when I publish something. Mm-hmm. And it's so difficult, because it's just, like, I, I've just put my effort into it, I put my, you know, my, my, my energy, this go, gone, that energy's gone, you know, it's mm-hmm. like... But this, this, you know, I, I and I, I recognize that by myself, and it feels, it feels difficult, and I have like uh, ways of, of working with that, and it reminds me of also the thing that helps me re- remind me of, of just like the importance of doing it no matter what is the mandalas, the sand mandalas that they make in Tibet, where mm-hmm. they make these large, intricate hours and hours and hours of, of these sand mandalas that create these beautiful images, and then right after they just wipe it away, and yeah. like yeah, it's like non-attachment. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Um, they're just like I just did this and now it's gone and that's why uh, in in the morning again going back to like my trip to Japan in the morning um, you put a little uh, like a saying or prayer on a piece of paper and then you throw it in uh, and that's it people do this with death poems uh, as well they'll create a death poem and then they'll put it in the fire sometimes people will save it because they really like their like like their mentor or they look them as a mentor so they want to save their death poems but like that's their death poem what is a death poem? Basically, a death poem is, it's uh, this thing that was popularized, or this thing that happened in Japan, where uh, upon your death, you, ha- you created a poem mm-hmm. that was kind of a reflection on your life. And it was usually the very short haikus or something like that. And that's their death poem. It's uh-huh. like the last words, uh-huh. in a sense. You see this a lot with uh, a lot of Japanese World War II pilots, like the kamikazes. They would write these letters to back home. Mm-hmm. And the, basically, the, that's their death poem. Mm-hmm. Because they're... They, they weren't going to be afforded the opportunity to do it, but like that's the modern version of that, I would think. Mm. It sounds very similar from that cultural perspective. I'm, I'm not claiming to be like a Japanese cultural expert, <laughs> but like, these are just my observations. I know nothing. Uh-huh. Caveat that. Um, cool. Um, <clears throat> have you noticed a change in your business uh, or your business life since you started to have this ontological framework, ontological Ground, groundedness uh, in your life? Yeah. Yes. Um, 
I love so like an example is like I like things that have nonlinear properties. Mm. Uh, so for example, I like startups because startups are a non they're nonlinear, so they have that property. Um, and you can make a lot of money out of them. Mm. You also can have a lot of influence because of them if they work out, but not many of them work, hardly ever work out. Um, there's also, you know, this thing of honor. Like, I think that most, I think there should be more entrepreneurs. I shouldn't say you should do, uh, become an entrepreneur because you're probably going to lose all your money. Mm. Um, <laughs> and have mental health uh, Yeah, I mean, um, but hopefully this podcast helps with that, right? Yeah. I think that's like an awesome thing that you're doing with that. Uh, and the the framework is like I like being in industries where there's an asymmetric payoff. Mm-hmm. So an example is like option trading. This is if you a certain type of options you have option trade offs. That's why I don't like investing in the stock market. There's like no mm-hmm. unless I like just buy option puts and I'm like I'm hoping the market collapses and just it, and then like somehow I just been uh, bleeding a little bit until that big event happens uh, and no one was seeing. I was like great make a lot but like yeah. I don't know I like the positive aspect of it instead of like you know whatever yeah. Some people like the negative. I want to say negative. It's like, I told you you shouldn't have been hiding risk somewhere because yeah. eventually it's going to blow up and I called you out on it. And yeah. I've been pounding this drum the whole time saying that you shouldn't be hiding risk. Um, but I like the positive aspect of it. I think um, the piece that I've always struggled with is, again, this attachment piece. And this is something that's relatively new to me and mm. I'm still playing with it. It's like I wanted to, I moved out from Washington, D.C. with my now wife and two dogs to San Mateo because I wanted to be in startups. Go work at a startup. It's like I want to be a founder. Mm. Go start a company. It's like I want to have a successful business. I'm like, oh, the jury's out on that one. <laughs> um, I want to be, you know, I'm investing. I fell into angel investing. Yeah. It's like fun. Like I didn't want to be an angel investor like jude and suman were like yeah you should come and like do this stuff yc demo day invest in yc company support it was super cool it's fun i had no idea what i was doing (laughs) that was organic Uh uh-huh and so i realized that's something i really like i didn't want to and then i'm like you know i want to go work for a big company uh to see what it's like or i want then this last one like the most recent attachments i had is like i want to be a venture capitalist Mm. why because I get to work, and you rationalize yourself, because I get to work with founders, and I get to, you know, if they do this really well, I do really, and I get to, like, yeah. will companies into existence and do uh-huh. positive things, but, like, that's grasping for things. It's like, I should, instead, I just said, I shut everything off, and I said, I am declaring, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, I'm declaring inbox bankruptcy, essentially, <laughs> like, no more, I'm starting new, and I'm just going to let the world, and, like, now it's like this new thing is organically uh-huh. happening with some of my friends that... Uh, it's kind of like we're in stealth mode about it. it's not a startup it's not a venture capital yeah. fund it's just kind of like just get some friends together that you like being around and see what comes of it and I don't know and this is the key to anti-fragility too because the spiritual equivalent of it and the spiritual equivalent of FU money too is that if whatever you're talking about then becomes big and a lot of people start coming to you also because we as human beings are written, are always aware of our social place uh, even though we we often t- tend to say we aren't but we are uh, um, unless maybe you've done a lot of work but uh, so when if this thing becomes large and influential then can you retain that I mean, can you get attached to that non-attachment as well that that no mind can you can you bring that no mind into that when you're when because when you're beginning something it's like it's much easier to not be attached to that but then when you're actually created something and it's sustaining or growing, can you actually be of no mind in that space too as well? Uh, I would imagine that it's hard to maintain no mind mm. if you're, are you talking about like you're rapidly growing? Yeah. 
I, I would imagine, so you can certainly not have attachments to the extent possible that you feel stress, but saying like the world is going to conspire for or against me, Dionysus may show up and I'll have to like deal with that when that comes and like integrate that into me and like have a bad board meeting. Um, but the no mind is hard because when you're at the point where, so like if, you know, I, I keep on going back to the wrestling. So I think wrestling is like the foundational sport for learning about complexity theory and the foundational sport for learning how to deal with stress. It's like the most stressful sport that's huh. ever been created. Huh. Um, most stressful organized sport. That's yeah. I don't even know what sports combat that's been created. <laughs> um, just a sheer number of people and the competitiveness in it. But when you are going against people as good as you or slightly less good or slightly better than you, mm. you can achieve this idea of no mind where you'll come off the mat and uh, somebody yeah. will be like, how was it? It's like, I didn't even know. Yeah. Like, how'd you do that move? It's like, I don't know. But yeah. when you go against somebody who's like better, much yeah. better yeah. than you, it's yeah. like, I have no idea what's happening. And yeah. you see this in warfare, people get rolled back on yeah. because they can't operate. They call this the OODA loop. They can't operate with mm. such agility that they're able to make decisions quick enough. And so they fall back on themselves. They basically just get rolled over. And so if you're in a high growth startup and you're, you just can't even control the growth, it's just happening organically, you're probably going to get rolled over yeah. and you're going to be not having no mind at times. Uh, and so, it's like almost inviting the Dionysian into it. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And you Zuckerberg need to go find going. somebody to oh. go guide you through that. You need like yeah. mentors. You need to surround yourself with good people that can help you get through and you know integrate that into your personality or mm. integrate that into your work um, and then kind of transcend it and get to the next level and kind of burst through it. Mm. So something you brought to mind is a little tangential, tangential, but uh, you talked about competing with somebody who's like light years ahead of you and you just don't know what's going on. You're just not, you're not capable to understand how much better they are and mm -hmm. all the little things that they're doing that are, that are like, that are adding to this, this picture of them being much better at it. Mm -hmm. Makes me think about computers and makes me think about combined intelligence between humans and computers and mm -hmm. like this kind of uh, this step that we're going to take over the next 20 to 30 years where we start to integrate with computers and that those who haven't integrated will be not able to keep up with 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 these kind of integrations with with computers and stuff like that what do you think so i think okay so the, there is line in the eye. This is like a great question. Mm. I love this. And mostly because I have some partially formed thoughts. And maybe this podcast is a, a vector to like maybe combine them in a less sloppy way. <laughs> so on one end, you have this idea of like, how do you actually make in, like artificial intelligence? Right? Right. So people think like big data. Like that's silly. Right. Big data for artificial intelligence is like a fool's error. And you need like deep data. Mm. Why deep data? Is because the thing, the model needs to know what what to do and how to do it. So mm. what you're looking at is like, you're looking at one aspect of a decision. Mm. Um, so that's why I think like pure AI, they say it's like pure AI is gonna take over the world. I think like pure AI is gonna be like a child mm -hmm. that can't make a decision on its own because it hasn't experienced enough of the world. So it's gonna do something outlandish, about this. Yeah. Uh -huh. like kill somebody yeah. or kill uh -huh. everyone. Uh, interesting. It's not because it's trying to it don't take it up. Emotional maturity. It, it doesn't understand complexity. Yeah. It's uh, like, I understand this deep thing, but it's like, you know, this is a good example. I was listening, I forget where I was listening to this, um, out in uh, one of the missile silos uh, somewhere, um, all of a sudden uh, they got a reading that it was like 99.9% .9 chance that the Soviet Union yep. was launching a thousand nuclear weapons at us. And this person's like that, it's like the computer says 99.9% .9 chance. And the guy's like, oh my God, freaking out. So then he calls up, the, uh, he tries calling up a general, the general's not answering. He calls up the Canadian military or someone in there, and they're like, 
it doesn't make sense because the president is in New York or the so like Soviet Union president is in like New York. Okay, well, so something's wrong. So then they do some more research and they realize that the sensor was looking at the moon and then interpreted the moon. <laughs> so it took the intuitiveness of some other person. Yeah, that wouldn't make sense because this person's yeah, here. Yeah. Like, how is it? Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. Like, and that's the type of intelligence. That, intuition is a type of intelligence that we've just only begun to kind of look into and peer into what it means to be intuitive and stuff like that with Daniel Kahneman and other... Exactly. Yeah. So maybe... You know, the idea of like a pure human versus you know, a pure organic human versus like a silicone organic human uh, uh-huh. is like the silicone organic human can make like certain decisions better. Mm. Mm. Maybe it's able to answer the question better and faster, but it still needs to ask the question and the human needs to ask the question. So I think like pure AI robots, like good at one very good task, but they can't ask the question. If they ask the question, then like... Yep. All right. Well, maybe I'm some again. I'm playing with this. I don't necessarily know words are sloppy. Blah blah blah. Caveat, caveat. <laughs> um, but I do think that nothing. It's hard to take the way that we have heuristics mm. and place that into a computer that's able to look at multiple heuristics and learn and get inputs, constantly observe, orient, decide, act, mm. and not even decide but just orient and act. And like that's a hard thing because a computer has to decide. So human beings sometimes when they have a good repertoire of skills, they just skip that decide step and go right from orient, act, great, mm-hmm. done. Yeah. And so in the, the to bring this into what I was talking about, it's essentially the integration of computers. Are you saying that that pure deep AI won't will be a while until we actually have that? But what about integrating like me actually using technology to enhance my uh, skills and ability. Uh, and then that kind of like, not really a, a separate artificial intelligence, but a human mixed with computer intelligence. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, we, we do it now with laptops. Uh-huh. We do it with our smartphones. We do it with, we have a microphone here recording us. Uh-huh. Um, so technology helps augment humans you know, in a positive or very negative way. And mm-hmm. I think this is like where, you get overly attached to the technology. Mm. You then lose the ability to become attached or to actually have a conversation. Like we like want to communicate on social media, but we lose the ability to communicate in person. Mm-hmm. Mm. Or we, social media is all about dopamine rushes and like what is that doing to our brains? So maybe there's the equivalent of that. Maybe the technology, maybe the human merged with AI is actually not a f- not fitness function. It's mm. it's not quote unquote Lindy mm. in like a complex. Uh, perspective is like hasn't survived long enough so mm-hmm. i think that humans are still going to be superior mm-hmm. for reasons that we don't know yet uh, interesting um how has technology influenced your spiritual practice if at all um so it has allowed me to find things that i otherwise would not have been able to find just through pure tinkering. Mm. Uh, so authors and downloading books onto my Kindle and ordering books from Amazon and launching a software business and learning through that process and keeping up with friends and talking to my mom on FaceTime, my dad, mom and dad on FaceTime. Um, but then there's this other part where it's like, it's hindered my spiritual practice because you have this thing that you is attached to your hip at all times Mm -hmm. and i keep on coming this notion of attachment it's like it's really bad like Mm -hmm. people talk about how social people know it's intuitively bad for them but they're still on it people know that 
they have a hard time getting away from work. Mm. It's like, just go into the mountains, go retreat. Mm. Don't bring anything with you. Like, don't do it as a spiritual thing. Just like, go for a walk. Yeah. Don't bring anything with you. Don't yeah. put headphones in. <laughs> just like, get away. Yeah. So in one sense, it's opened me up to this realm of possibility, but it's like this yin and yang thing. It's like, mm. it's really good here, but it's like terrible here. Yeah. So you have to know it's terrible. And that's why if you realize how terrible it can be and you um, integrate that, yeah. then you realize what the, what possible is. Like mm. You open yourself up to the good stuff and you open yourself up to the bad stuff. Mm. And it's again bringing that Dionysian side to it as well or just becoming aware of the Dionysian side of like, oh, I'm on Twitter and I'm like my dopamine is just getting shot through the roof and I'm like so interested in what's going on here. But at the same time, this is chaos. And I'm like, I'm not doing the thing that I wanted to be doing when I first set out this morning. Yeah, it's a... Uh, it's, it's like the, the, so imagine going to a concert, and I think this is like, this is the ritualistic practice. I think this is the most important part. It's like you go to a concert, like imagine you're at a concert, mm. the concert opens up. It's a very Dionysian experience. Like you have a bunch of people reveling around and drinking mm. and having a good time, the music, and like you feel it in your bones. You can't explain it, but you just feel it. And then it ends. Mm. And then you're like, and then what? Yeah. And it wasn't until I went to this, um, this, this uh, this Shingon area in Japan where it's like, you it's a ritual to it. There's a beginning and then an end and you know what it is. And so when you have these experiences, these um, these wild experiences together where you're, you're experiencing the rawness of human nature, there's no in and out. It's just always there. Um, and that can like mess you up. That's mm-hmm. why you need to like you see these caves where like the caves were probably an experience to going to bringing a young boy through to manhood, and afterwards they have a new name. Mm-hmm. Something changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't necessarily know if it's like a Dionysian aspect on social media or not, but it's like there is there's a lot of triggering because people can't communicate correctly. They don't know how to. They're always posturing because they because they can't. They're attaching to things. Mm-hmm. And they're attaching to their argument and then they perceive their argument as being threatened and then they perceive themselves as being threatened because they've got this whole identity with, with, with what, they've, what they perceive as themselves. Uh, but then an, another point I think you made was that there is a beginning, a middle, and an end to a lot of these experiences where in social media there is no beginning, middle, and end. At least nobody's like aware of it. They're just jumping from thing to thing to thing and then with, without any awareness of like, okay, I'm doing this. Oh, now I'm doing that. Uh, and it feels like it feels like almost that you know, I was diagnosed with ADHD, and um, I was also one of the first generation to grow up with a computer and grow up with the internet and grow up with computer games all the time. And so it's like I don't think that's a coincidence. I think like I think ADHD is is like a, a is like a response to to attention being fractured by by computers and stuff like that. And it's actually like an adaptation uh, because I can feels like I can live in this world and switch attention very quickly in a way that's 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 beneficial to this to this world i totally agree with you yeah. i'm like the same boat yeah. um yeah i totally agree um grew up with computers and context switching and um feeling that sense too where it's like i you know my wife always jokes around it's like you have like all these books like like which one are you reading all the way through it's like now i have like 12 of them open at the same time it's like i'm just like hammering them all out I'm like oh look at this thing and then going over here and like that and they mentioned it over here and like you start connecting the dots yeah. i think it's great because uh-huh. you have this like you have the ability to context switch your agility is much higher than someone else but it's like finding and the thing that i always have problems like pushing something through to yeah. the end yeah mm-hmm 
And that's like the, you know, you bring the ball from the one yard line to like the proverbial red zone and then like can't quite punch it in yet. And so like I've been spending a lot of my time like the reason why I'm not punching it in is like once I get into that zone, I got to like really focus on Mm. getting that thing over the line Mm. um, without wanting it because I want a touchdown Mm. because like I'm going in that direction. So Mm. like let's make it, yeah, let's continue that. Yeah, that's the same same issue I got. (laughs) I'm trying to I'm trying to write thirty days in a row, uh, writing and publishing every day. So, uh, so um, yeah, I'm experiencing a bunch of that right now. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome that you're you're, you're uh, attempting to do that. That's yeah. great. Yeah, it's fun. So, what are you reading right now? Oh my goodness, uh, I'm reading a bunch. Of, so, I reread a lot of books. Mm-hmm. Um, I reread them because I think that books worth reading all the way through are worth rereading again. Mm-hmm. And I have like the ones that I come back to every now and then. So it's like, you know, I, if people may, uh, may know, like, but I like reading um, Ernest Hemingway's books. I think they're like interesting. He uses like short sentences and he kind of mm-hmm. has a good grasp of like this weird, you know, eccentric way of, of kind of talking about the human, uh, uh, the, about human psychology. Um, I read Nietzsche a lot just because you can just pick up the book anywhere. Mm. It's his train of thought is like in section, like section one, sec, uh, part two, part three, and it's like part hundred and fifty eight. It's like you just pick up wherever you want. Uh, um, you know, what's what's the what's the best book to start with Nietzsche? Um, I think the I was very happy that I started with Birth of Tragedy mm. because it brings into concept the Western idea, the ancient Greek idea of. Um, the Apollonian and Dionysian mm. component, which if you can like, you see that echo throughout history. It's like the yin and the yang, and like, mm. you know, the you know mind and no mind. We're constantly at this. There's these two competing elements. Duality. Exactly. Yeah. Um, duality and non-duality. It's like, all this, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. it's like there is opposites and everything. Mm-hmm. Like then good versus evil is like where he just basically deconstructs morality, and mm. I think that's like, like my mind was blown. I was like, okay. Everything I'd known about the world is, like, not true. I could totally see how, like, you know, for example, you get into an argument with somebody. Uh-huh. You have a point of view which you think is morally right. Well, is it morally right? Mm. Like, well, what is morally right? It's like, well, we shouldn't kill people. It's like, but yet we, like, kill people. It's like, you're, we said we should say we're all capable of doing it. Mm. Morality is just, like... It is what is expedient. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what's good and bad. Like, what is expedient? And defined by a group as the in-group. And that's the problem is, yeah. like, people want other people to define what is good and bad yeah. and for them. And I'm not going to get into, like, the religious and, like, the, 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 the governmental socialistic components of it. But it's like, you know, you have other people define it for you because people just want to, like, get that hack. It's like, mm-hmm. I want to associate with this. I want to associate with that. And then you try deconstructing their arguments and you're like, well, you're being like domain dependent mm-hmm. here and you're cherry picking here. And it's like, then they, they kind of anchor something in the ground, like using a re- uh, like a rhetorical device. Be like, this thing. So now instead of attacking the thing that you wanted to, like de- uh-huh. not attacking, but deconstruct the thing you wanted to deconstruct, you're like, instead having to deal so with this, like this post that they put in the ground, like, no, you have to address this thing first. Like, <laughs> and that's basically all politics. And it's just, then we end up in this like triggering culture where we just can't have a conversation. It's mm-hmm. like, no one, it's like, we're all kind of children. And it's, and it's, and I think it's because we, a lot of us haven't integrated that Dionysian aspect of it where, and that's why like Trump is anti-fragile because he is that representation of that Dionysian kind of chaos. Like, yeah, I mean like, you know, he, I want to say that, that, that I, I want to say that he's like the, the Dionysian part because, you know, Dionysian appears like whenever, like the, 
I think he is more of like, you know, he is our president and he was elected there in a process that we have defined mm. because we agree that the world should be run this way that we enforce on other people. Uh-huh. Like there's good in uh, for, you know, people can say like good and evil and all that, but there's like, it's just, it's all just expedience. Mm-hmm. Like what is good? Like is democracy good? People are like democracy is great. It's like, well, you know, democracy is not good at a federal scale like i don't want to i don't want the rabble deciding who's going to become president uh-huh. because then we're going to you, you want to see like emergence happen like you're going to see some emergence so like you you know that's why like people say like what are you politically i'm like uh-huh. well my home I'm a socialist uh-huh. and the city or state level i'm uh-huh. a democrat and i'm like uh-huh. the state level i'm a republican at the federal level i'm like you know libertarian uh-huh. slash you know in some aspects i want to defend i don't want to create wars but if somebody attacks me i want to make sure i have like the idea so I can keep on going. There's like a, uh-huh. you know, I'm interesting. I've never heard of defining pol- political values based on the level at which they're being discussed. And you can do this when you don't have an attachment to a political party yeah. or to ideals. It's like you talk to people, it's like, I want to, I want, I know we're like going down rabbit holes here, but I think like <laughs> this is important for people to realize that like we all have these attachments. We all real, you, when you realize you have it, when you realize you're capable of evil, not, not just physically, but emotional harm. Mm-hmm. I think about all the, we've all, in some instances, hurt people or bully people or said things that are just terrible. Mm-hmm. Just integrate that into you. This way you can open up your heart to other people that are doing it to you. You understand why. It's like, I get it. Mm-hmm. Then you can detach because you realize that other people are coming at you. If an investor is mad because your company's not performing, you like detach. Be like, all right, I want to know what he's bringing into the yeah. com- or she's bringing into the conversations. What am I bringing into the conversation? How are we interacting mm-hmm. together? And then we can solve the, like, the it problem. Mm-hmm. But right but now... You can't solve that problem unless you've integrated all the shit that you have inside of you yeah it starts with you it's like uh who's that like jordan peter's like clean up your room it's like you know you have these people that want to change the world but like they are just deeply flawed Mm -hmm. and they don't even they have they're operating in the shadows Mm -hmm. like their shadow elements is just is running them it's like lightning it's like you have somebody you try to fight them it's like boom they just shut you down it's like i know everything Mm -hmm. um but it's a it's an interesting time silly time <laughs> uh, but like conversations like this are good to have and i'm happy that you're doing podcasts like this where cool. you can dive deeper into the spiritual part talk mm-hmm. about how difficult it is to be a founder ceo but it's also immensely rewarding mm-hmm. even if your company fails mm-hmm. your company fails it helps the ecosystem become stronger yeah, anti-fragile, yeah. failure does not define you mm-hmm. you are still this person who's going to go out into the world just act with integrity be honorable, mm. stand up for what's right, call fraud when you see fraud, and then just go out into the world and like make things happen, but don't necessarily attach to any one thing. Yeah, and let it be a organic rising of conditions. What was the word you used? You used uh, inviting things in, like uh, co co creation. I don't I don't remember. You uh, used a particular it, word. It was like uh, you you want to have the universe conspire, conspire for you. For you. Yeah, like yeah. that's just putting yourself around good people. It's mm. like you know my friends that, that introduced us to guys like I love hanging around them why because like every time I leave I'm like jazz yeah. you can't leave a conversation with Suman and be like I don't feel good you're like I'm just gonna like do everything now because yeah. it's just so inspiring but if you're around people who are just like being mm. it's like I'm, they're just surviving it's yeah. like it's hard for them you like you open your heart up to them it's like I understand that they're going through this but if you're well, it's your world mm. you don't have people that are like becoming yeah. and you're trying just a, not achieving but just they're just Becoming, it's like mm-hmm. the only word I can even use to describe it versus just being. Yeah. They're two completely different uh-huh. pieces. And so yeah. surround yourself with people that are becoming, not just 
being and surviving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Though you do want to help the people that are being and surviving. You want to be like you want to be there for them. You want to help them also become like you are. Mm-hmm. Like do this process of becoming. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So how can people find out more about what you're thinking? Um, so I post uh, very uh, infrequently, but when I do post, I post a lot on Twitter um, uh, at, at Charlie Pinto. Uh, I also have a website that I put up mostly because I was helping a lot of high school kids and they were like, well, what, you know, what are things I should read and what are cool things that I should be looking at? So I just started posting stuff and then some friends said I should post some more. And so now I just have a website, charliepinto.com, um, where I just post things. And if it's interesting, cool. If not, it's like a creative outlet for me. Uh-huh. I'm just, when I find things I like that, that's my commonplace book. Mm. It's just posting stuff there and seeing what comes of it. Cool. Uh-huh. We'll go check it out. Uh, charliepinto.com? Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having yeah. me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you guys for tuning in and listening to this episode. I'm assuming you'd listen to the whole episode if you're listening to my words right now. So I just wanted to say thank you. I, I, I love providing this, I don't know, wisdom, insight, whatever it is that's coming through me and my guests. I love providing it for you. Uh, and I want to keep on doing it. Uh, and uh, even if it's, you know, I'm going into debt, but who cares? I just love doing this stuff. So uh, please... If you want to uh, find me on Substack, I'm stuartalsop.substack.com. It's totally free right now. I'm not, I'm not charging for it. Uh, just let, giving all my thoughts, all these episodes I'm doing. I'm interviewing people. Like, I'm doing like seven interviews a week. Uh, the hardest thing for me is actually to publish all of them because it takes about 30, 45 minutes to publish each one and edit them. I'm not doing too much editing. Um, I like to keep the conversations pretty, you know, what actually happened there, even my mistakes. Uh, uh, this is real. This is this is r- really what I think, and it's really what my guests think, and I love doing it. So, please join the journey. Thank you.